Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Christ. We thank you for the fact that we have a Savior who has suffered far more for us than we would ever be asked to suffer for him. Thank you that he understands the plight of the one who is abused. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless our time now. Help me to speak in a way that's appropriate and circumspect about a, a challenging topic and help equip us to help others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, <clears throat> I'm probably going to ditch the PowerPoint, and you can follow along in your notes. That way I won't be worrying about operating the uh, thing. And since there are so few of us, I'm inclined to make it possible for it to be a bit more interactive. And if somebody's listening to this audio and saying, I want all the content, www.ibcd.org. You can find a lot of the content there, too. Um, but th this is a topic which um, I've written this booklet. It's actually been republished by Shepherd Press now in this format. Is everything working OK for you? Yes. Sorry. Thanks. Um, and yet there have been things that have happened even in the context of our own ministry, that have made this more personal to me and of greater concern to me since uh, I wrote the booklet. And if you're looking in your uh, syllabus here, on pages 50 and 51, I describe a situation that occurred to us. I'm not going to read it all to you. But we actually had a situation in which there was a, a missionary sent by our church somebody that, who had become an elder in our church. He was a uh, Filipino-American uh, man. <clears throat> He'd been an experienced pastor in the Philippines. And he was in our church and had a great reputation. The Lord seemed to use him to bring many people to faith. He seemed to be very wise. People looked up to him. And uh, in the early 90s, we made him an elder in our church. In the late 90s, we sent him back to the Philippines as a missionary. And it was now almost two years ago that his wife passed away in her early 80s. But after she passed away, and they'd been working over there, I would go over there every year and a half, two years, and minister with them there in the Philippines. And it seemed like great things were being accomplished. After she passed away, we discovered that he had had a mistress for the last more than 10 years before his wife died. And when we discussed not only that, that he had started carrying on with her when she was 17, and he would have been 70. And in the Philippines, as in a lot of other, I mean, it's not unheard of in our situation in the U.S., but especially in a lot of Asian contexts, these things are just kind of pushed to the side. And we knew biblically we couldn't do that. So my wife and I actually went over there. We met with the other pastors whom he had been influencing. But what happened then is we discovered that this man had been a serial sexual abuser for 30 or 40, year, 40 years. And as we went, we had um, women come, a woman came to us who was now in her 40s, who had, when she was 16, been essentially raped by this guy when he was a pastor in the Philippines. And, but she had been told, don't tell anybody, and just keep it quiet. We found many others who had had missionaries and other pastors who had sexually assaulted them. And uh, it was just overwhelming. And we publicly disciplined the man. And 
we warned the people there about it, but also we warned, as I met with a large number of leaders, there were warnings given about the dangers of this kind of abuse in churches and in, in missionary situations. And I wrote this blog, which was published in a couple different places, the things that we learned, and just how deceitful, and this is true of all kinds of abuse. Abusers are really good liars, and they can appear to be the nicest guy. We, we had another case in our church where there was a man we knew was violent with his wife, and we'd been trying to deal with it. Situation occurred where she called the police, and the police get there, and she persuades the police he's the one that came at her with a knife. I mean, she's the one that came at him with a knife, and they took her away. And she's just there sobbing, and he's articulate, and he's talking, and, and on it goes. So this guy was like a family member to us. I was actually, he was about the age of my own parents, and uh, we actually helped raise an adopted child of his, and you know, nobody would have, I mean, just as shocking as it could be, not just that he was sexually immoral, but he was finding weak women and getting them into situations in a very deliberate way, and then becoming involved with them. And we, the second thing we were reminded of, and you're familiar with in Deuteronomy 22, and this is a principle for abuse in general, <clears throat> especially for sexual abuse. It's an example of taking a principle from the Old Testament and taking that principle, applying it more broadly. In verse 22, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus she shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both to the gate of that city. You shall stone them to death, the girl because she did not cry out in the city, and the man because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among yourselves. And... <clears throat> The situation there being described is that under the old covenant that if a woman is in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, you know, she's engaged, whatever the situation is, and with somebody else, she has a duty. What's the duty? To, to cry out. And the situations we've found of sexual abuse, sexual abusers are very good at finding weak women who are afraid to cry out. Uh, I'm surprised how often in counseling you find these horrible things have happened and, and women would rather just be quiet and not have to deal with repercussions. Other people will tell them to be quiet, to silence them. The mother of the girl who was essentially raped when she was 16 just says, don't tell anybody, keep it to yourself. But biblically, there is a duty to cry out. One reason is, why, we, why do you need to cry out? So other people know why do other people need to know? So it won't happen again. Uh, the, when we went to the Philippines and the girl who had been raped when she was 16 and now is in her 40s came to my wife, part of why she was weeping, she says, if I would have done something at that time, he might not have kept doing this for so many years, using his position of power and trust to take advantage of many, many women over a period of time. And so part of it's the golden rule. And that has to do with reporting abuse in general. Sexual abusers typically, many, many times, abuse before they're caught. Physical abusers typically, in some you know, how many times a woman has been hit or children have been abused before finally it gets reported. And so, for the sake of others, and as well, just from the standpoint of her own integrity. An example of that would be when Tamar was raped by Amnon, she was private, so she cried out, nobody heard. 
But what does she do? She tears her garments. She makes known what happened to her in 2 Samuel 13. Um, now, which brings you to the next point, we need to protect and help victims. The saddest thing about Tamar is that after she was raped, nobody did anything. Well, I guess Absalom finally did something, but not exactly the right thing in the right way. But, you know, there she is, and she's, she's in sackcloth and ashes. King David, it says he heard of all these matters. He was angry, but he didn't do anything. The potential heir to the throne has committed rape and incest. And even Amnon says in verse 20, I mean, Absalom says, Has Amnon, my brother, been with you? Now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. And that's the answer many women get, and boys, potentially, when sexually abused, is just be quiet about it. Well, no, people need to cry out. And children from a young age, especially in our culture, need to be taught, I would say in the context especially of the home, to some extent it needs to be taught in the church. This principle, if someone touches you this way, talks to you this way, you know, removing clothes, them, others, private things, just, you need to prepare them to cry out because sexual predators are so deceptive that we have a secret, we can't tell anybody, you'll get in trouble, I'll get in trouble. They need to be prepared before the temptation and trouble comes or they will be extremely vulnerable. And you know, my wife, has, you know, she with women, she's doing this, I'm helping my wife, but she's the primary person dealing with the ones that come to our center. And you just, again, it's stepbrother, it's even father, it's all these different horrible situations. Uh, missionary kids by someone teaching in a missionary school. So children, young people need to be taught to cry out, and then we need to take them seriously. Now, biblically, there are rules of evidence in the sense that an accusation does not always make a person guilty. By the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter is confirmed, which is one reason why, as a man, I do not want to be alone with someone. Hi. Are you here to take pictures or to join us? Okay, whatever you want to do. Um, <clears throat> so, back to the, where was I? Take, wake up, we all need to wake up. <laughs> Right, so... I think you were going to say why you don't count You're right. So, one is, neither man nor woman, you want to, you want to get in a situation where you only have one witness anyway. To, because that's why I was talking to other people. I will not counsel a woman alone, even if I've got windows all over the place. Because I could be accused of saying something or suggesting something, and I have no way of proving I didn't do it. Um, but, so we shouldn't, on either side, be in that kind of situation. But... We can't do what was done to Tamar. We need to take these accusations seriously. We need to investigate them. We need to protect the weak. Proverbs 31 talks about that, you know, for those who are oppressed and are crying out. And if people had taken the cries of others in the past seriously, instead of just hoping he would change and covering it up, many victims potentially could have been spared. Um, and then sexual predators need to be publicly exposed. We're too often concerned, well, this will be so embarrassing for the family, uh, even potentially for the victims. But it's like this guy, <clears throat> you know, who had been doing this now for 40 years and had never been caught. You know, we, both in the U.S. and in the Philippines, 
we held meetings, we published things, say this is what we have, this is the proof, this is what the medicine has done, beware. Uh, because it's their very position of trust. And, and even a consensual relationship between a spiritual leader and a sheep is abusive because there is trust and you know expectation of safety. There's so much power that other person has. Um, <clears throat> and so people need to be warned and the position of trust needs to be taken away. Uh, Paul talks to Timothy about exposing those who uh, are elders who are unqualified. And of course, in many cases, it needs to be exposed to the point of criminal prosecution uh, where that can happen. And then, this will be more if we get into it as I keep going, victims need to be helped, counseled, ministered to, and dealing with the past in an appropriate way. The woman who had been raped when she was 16 and talked to Carol when she was 40 had never told anybody, even her husband, what had happened to her and had not really been able to process it. Her, her mother knew and told her to be quiet, and that was it. And so being able to look back, a great book is Putting Your Past in Its Place by Steve Byers, dealing with the past in general, but seeing he has these quadrants where you've sinned, but then if you dealt with it properly or unbiblically, you've been sinned against. Again, you can, when you've been sinned against by others, you can deal with it in a biblical way or in an unbiblical way. And Joseph was sinned against, but he, he dealt with it in a biblical way and trusted God. Other people, when they're sinned against, they sin more and make it worse. And so you're, you're trying to help that person deal with it. And including the fact, like this woman, dealing with the guilt of not having cried out. And she sees biblically she should have, and in her conscience she probably had some knowledge of that. And then we must put our ultimate trust in God. Uh, it's devastating, okay. and I'm sure most of you have been aware of failures of leaders, and nothing is more egregious than for a spiritual leader to take advantage of his position of trust and authority to take advantage of someone sexually. But our hope has to be ultimately in Christ, and we have to be fearless in upholding Christ's standards. So um, that's something that's been on my heart even since I wrote the booklet and the, uh, the main outline that's prior to the page just read. I wrote up here where you can't read it because it's not in front of you. Two resources that have come out that I found to be very helpful. One is a book called Rid of My Disgrace by the Holcombs. And it's written primarily for victims of sexual abuse. And I think they do a great job of talking about the emotions of guilt and shame, anger, and how you deal with these emotions biblically in the victim of abuse. My wife has gone through this with several women. It's called Rid of My Disgrace by Justin and Jody Holcomb. They've written another one that's called It's Not Your Fault, which is following up from that. And I think that's also very good. I'll make one brief word of caution. And this is just, I think the material is very good. The only caution I would give sometimes when you read people who are advocates for victims of abuse is that, that I'd give two cautions. One would be that just because someone says they've been abused, you take it seriously, but you can't treat the other party as guilty without a biblical standard of proof. Not every time someone says they've been abused have they been abused. And so I think sometimes you know, the pendulum can swing back and forth. And there's been a tendency 
over many years, and I've actually had counselees come where they're just said, just submit to your husband more, even though he's beating you, and he'll get nice. Not necessarily. Some men are so evil, they'll just beat you more. And so been, there's been a wrong tolerance of abuse in the church, and now there's a reaction against that. But just because someone says they are abused, you still have to look into it, because I had a girl who was a stepdaughter, and she wanted total freedom from her parents. She's 15 years old. She basically said, unless you give me a cell phone and a car, I'm going to call CPS and say that dad's been molesting me. Now, he's not been doing that, but she knows the power that that gives. Uh, one of my first physical abuse cases was a case in which a, it was the sweetest couple you thought you ever saw in church, just the quiet, mild-mannered people, and they're describing what's going on in their home. And there is abuse going on, but they have a pattern where when they have an argument verbally, the wife makes it her goal to get him to hit her, and then she's won. And she would punch every single one of them. Come on, hit me, Jesus, man. You can do it. And he never has an excuse for hitting her. Okay, It's his fault, and he's very, very guilty. But she has guilt, too. Uh, another example would be the duty of a girl to cry out, a duty of a girl not to get into certain situations. It doesn't excuse what the other person did. No means no, no matter what. But before God, especially, she may still have some responsibility she needs to deal with. And so those are some caveats. But having said that, those are really good resources to bring out the compassion we should have for the abused, how to help counsel the abused person, and as, we, as my wife especially has helped women who have been abused, these books have been extremely valuable in, in helping work through those cases. Uh, the other book I have written down there is Beauty for Ashes, about sexual abuse. It's one of these mini books that uh, PNR has put out. Bob Kellerman is the author. And what he does in that little book is he goes through the story of Amnon and Tamar in 2 Samuel 13 and parallels it with an actual counseling case and how through multiple sessions, helping a woman who has been abused to work through that. And she was sexually abused not by her husband, but by somebody else, but it's affecting their marriage. And how she's able to see the compassion God has for her and how to deal with what happened to her in the past. So those are some good resources in that in, in particular. When it comes to counseling in cases of abuse, um, abuse is a word in English, that we would categorize certain biblical words. What would be biblical words you would think of when you think of abuse? Outbursts of anger, murderous behavior, you know, various kinds of contentions. Um, <clears throat> so the biblical understanding we would have would be, you know, it's mistreating someone, uh, venting anger. Um, it doesn't mean we can't spank. A lot of, by the way, a lot of child abuse is people who think they're spanking in a biblical way, but instead of really correcting, they're venting their anger. Parents are never justified in venting their anger on a child. They're to create a, a moderate amount of pain in order to achieve a, a goal of obedience. And a lot of the reason why I think in the world, psychiatrists, psychologists are against spanking is they can't imagine a scenario except that when a parent finally gets so mad they hit the kid, they are abusive. And there is a lot of abusive spanking that goes on in the sense, you know, again, I never was going to spank my kid, but he made me so mad I belted him. Well, that's very dangerous. You're modeling sinful anger. 
you're in danger of being out of control and hurting them, you know, like a city with the walls broken down is a man who has no control over his spirit. So measured spanking in love to accomplish a purpose, completely biblical, out of control anger, wailing on a kid is abusive. Um, and then when it comes to a spouse, uh, one of the biggest problems you have in the area of abuse is men who are experts on Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands, who have never gotten to verse 25 where it said their job. And they think it's their job to make the wife submit. And they think they can do anything to make that happen. From the standpoint of the husband, submission is voluntary for my wife. I cannot make her submit. I can actually make my minor kids submit. I can say, I'm going to spank you if you don't do your homework. I'm going to withhold things from you if you don't do what I say. I've been given the authority to discipline children. There's no authority given to a, one spouse to discipline the other. Uh, we can appeal to church authority. If we have to, we can appeal to civil authority. But, and I, I've had this where you know, a man says, well, my wife won't come to church with me. What can I do? You pray for her. You say, I'd love for you to come, but it's between you and the Lord what you do. That, that's all you can do. You, you can't physically force her to do so. Uh, abuse, physical abuse is a crime, especially against a child. Sexual abuse is a crime in almost all jurisdictions. Those of us who counsel even to the church are mandated reporters of physical and sexual abuse of a minor. I used to not like that very much. But I'm actually for it now because it is a crime and it's beyond the jurisdiction of the church. We, again, concrete example, we had a guy, we were counseling him and his wife. They were, he was sexually immoral, being unfaithful in the marriage. They had a small child. He gets mad. He's a policeman, pulls out his gun, points it at his wife, his child, and himself, and threatens everybody. Well, we had to report that, and I don't mind. Because we, we can't control that behavior. A man like that should not be a police officer if he has no control over himself. And he is no longer a police officer. Where did you report that to? Um, the sheriff, I believe. Could you go, could you go directly to your local police department? Yes, I mean, different jurisdictions. You social services. In that case, I think we might have called 911. But yeah, I mean, yeah. You, I think in our area, you reported to the police or the sheriff. And then if it's an emergency situation, they show up right away. If it's not an emergency situation, they refer to CPS, and CPS investigates. That would be and, we have to, and we also have to fill out a written report according to the law when we report. But in you know, other cases, again, the same guy who convinced the police that his wife was the one that threatened him, which was a lie, well, later we find out that he's also a sluggard. And his wife's working. He's at home watching TV. His four-year-old gets between him and the TV smacks the kid in the face, bloodies his nose, and leaves a mark. I did not at all mind calling the sheriff, and it brought me some satisfaction to hear of him being arrested and taken away, because he had been exhibiting a pattern like this for a very long time. God gave the sword to Caesar to do its job. And so, you know, if I will not report, if someone is spanking in a biblical way, I'm not going to accept the government's right to make me do that. But there is a lot of wickedly abusive behavior that the church does not have the power or authority to be able to bring civil jurisdiction and that, you know, to bring the proper punishment with it. A crime is being committed. Likewise, is sexual abuse. That we've had cases of you know, sexual touching, of 
or even you know, probable cause. It's, it's not our job to investigate and come to a conclusion if we have a sense of the likelihood of something happening. And again, it's something you need to figure out beforehand. It's not something when the situation, well, what do we do now? You make a policy that if there is likelihood of physical or sexual abuse of a child, we will report and leave it to the government to investigate the crime and cooperate with that. As opposed, you know, when you're in the situation, it's, it's often, we had a situation where the family whose child was the victim, they said, we don't want to report it. We have to report it. You know, we're mandated, and in the long run, I think it was the right thing. Um, within case of spousal abuse, um, the government assumes that if a woman is being beaten, she can stand up for herself, unlike a child, and she's the one who needs to report. Yes? Um, I have a question about the, the child abuse. Um, there was a large church in the country that recently uh, had a big um, ordeal from the media and stuff. Um, and basically, one of what sexual abuse cases being unreported. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, uh, one of the things that that one of the victims had said was that um, in, in a counseling with one of the elders, basically the father had confessed to having, um, to having temptation to have a relationship with his daughter. The elders did not report it legally, but they did, they did pursue doing, um, like, the church discipline, they, they pursued, they, they really were working with the father on how to work on these struggles in his heart, how to to do everything. The, the son in this case was angry about it and felt like there should have been action taken, even though he had never physically touched his sister, he felt like there should have been legal action taken. So is there a responsibility with the church in a case where there's no there's no physical harm done, but that there is just struggles? Right. And Proverbs 18, 17 says, the first to plead his case sounds right till someone else comes along and examines him. So it's hard to talk about that particular case because there may be facts that makes it more complicated. But if someone comes to me and says, I have sexual thoughts about my stepdaughter. Have you ever touched her? Have you ever gone into her room and looked at her? Have you, you know, and I'm, I'm going to ask some specific questions, but in general, I would say if someone had a thought of something and they confessed it, that's not grounds for punishing them. Um, right. Now, it might be for something. Yeah, murder, among other things. I mean, with your own kids. But, um, right. So, but in the case you're describing, which I don't know all the details, there may have been more details that made it a le- could have made it a legal matter. But the part of the problem is, though, people tend to minimize. And so I think your antenna are way up in that situation in terms of if he's admitting to this much, then I, I need to really keep my eye on this because it could be more. It could even be cause to say, you know, talk to the daughter or the mother and make sure things are fine find some way of doing that, which is getting a bit into the investigation, but you know, when it's clear 
probable we have to report. There's going to be some discretion we show. But seeing what's happened in some of these well-publicized cases and the harm that's been caused, not just to the churches, but the reputation of Christ, you just have to make up your mind in advance. It's become a civil matter. It's like if somebody in your church shot somebody else, it, the church can't just manage that through discipline. It's, it's become a legal matter under the jurisdiction of the state. Sexual abuse and physical abuse of a child falls into that category. And when in doubt, you probably need to report and let them sort it out. And we've reported where it's been investigated, and they said, you know, something may have happened, but we can't prove it. And that's where you have to trust God ultimately to bring justice. But, you know, the proverb says how, you know, we need to see the evil. We need to, we need to recognize the culture in which we live and provide protections in our nurseries and our youth programs, you know, rules, and I'm not going to go into all those, but not being alone with kids and checking people out through the database because sexual predators see churches as a place where they can find victims and get by with it. And we've had multiple attempts made over 25 years in our church. Um, and so there's more and more expected, and we need to do that because of the evil age in which we live. A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceeds and pay the penalty. Um, and like I said, part of it, too, is to prepare children that they are at risk. A large percentage of children in some way are going to be approached inappropriately, and they need to be prepared for that. I've even had families where they kind of rehearse with their kids. If this happens, what are you going to do? And ah, just run and scream and make a little bit of a game of it. But you've prepared them ahead of time because once the situation occurs, I'm just shocked. I'm shocked when I learn, well, here's a girl who's 21 years old, she's about to be married in six months, and it turns out her father has been molesting her entire life, and she's never said anything to anybody because she just didn't want to make waves. And anyway, so we need to prepare them. We need to help the weak and be concerned about them. Uh, We have a duty. Uh, I've already mentioned Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Um, We need to be concerned about this. Um, Case after case after case we've dealt with, and just more and more over the years. Um, It means, likewise, with the, the husband who's physically abusive to his wife, that we as the leaders of the church, I think it's shameful that many churches have sent a woman back to take a beating. I think we have the duty, I mean, we want to try to reconcile the marriage, we want to bring the husband to repentance, but we have a, she has the right to be physically safe, and uh, we have the duty to encourage her in that, and even to help her to see the uh, realities of her situation, because a lot of times through manipulation, she thinks, well, you know, if I was just a better wife, he wouldn't beat on me. There is no excuse. Yeah, you could be a better wife. We could all be better. Um, is violence an excuse for divorce? As in, is it grounds for divorce? Um, I would say, first of all, it's grounds for the person to get safe until we have some high degree of confidence they are safe. And the church needs to be prepared to you know, come live with somebody else, housing, whatever. And I think she has the right to stay away until there's some, it doesn't mean he has to convert and become wonderful, but some plan in place and some hope 
that she is going to be safe in that environment. And that could wind up, and you know, this is something, I don't want to, it's not a seminar on divorce, but abandonment may be beyond physically moving away. If someone is living with a woman and he's constantly beating her and abusing her, um, some could argue that there's a measure of abandonment taking place. I would say stay away from her, you know, stay away for a long time, try to work it out, say, if you're willing to work on this and change, I want to work with you. But over time, uh, there are some men who are incorrigibly violent. Uh, verbal abuse is more tricky. Jesus says it's murder, so we don't take it lightly. Um, it needs to be confronted. The seriousness of it needs to be addressed, especially if the person doing it is a professing Christian. By the way, I should also mention, I've had a reasonable number of cases where it's the woman who's the one who's physically violent and verbally abusive. It's not just one side or the other. Uh, I've had some awful cases of angry, anger is not merely a male sin, and it's expression. Um, and sometimes, temporarily, somebody has to get away. And Again, there's, this, there's the danger of going too far either way, in the sense that some people, like one angry sentence, well, I'm being verbally abused and I, I have the right to divorce. That's nonsense, because you're a sinner too. On the other hand, I've seen cases where, you know, this man is, and his wife is following him around the house to the car, yelling, screaming, cussing. And I've not told that guy to divorce her, but I have said, I could see if you felt like you needed to spend a night in a hotel now and then, if she will not let him sleep, she's waking him up, jostling him, yelling at him, and in all kinds of mess there. But these situations are messy. Um, backing up just to, to touch here uh, what you just said. We had a situation we had to deal with about a year ago and uh, the consent to dwell with the first Corinthians 7 factor mm-hmm. with some of the elders. Right. You know, and typically uh, it seems that the consent to dwell with as long as he wants to stay in, under the roof. Right. You know, uh, meantime, 25 years of marriage there was uh, physical abuse, uh, verbal abuse, a lot of verbal abuse, and uh, and wouldn't work. She had to work. Right. She uh, he never worked, and yet he had a bunch of toys, airplanes, bunch of stuff. She made six figures, and uh, and then it was just well, he doesn't want to leave. Well, of course he doesn't want to leave. Why would you want to leave? Right. I've had that case. I've yeah, had that situation know, as well. Exactly, and that was a bit of a. Uh, He's abandoned his responsibilities in the marriage to such a degree, like you said, you're on the gravy train, so it's not like you actually care for your wife. You're just using... I've seen men who they don't work, and they want... I'm the head, so I decide all the money is spent. And so... So you would consent to dwell with you think it's more than just wanting to stay in the same home? I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah. I would want to go very slowly and cautiously. trying to... Right. It's a tough one. I, I, I come with what you said, and I, you think that I was uh, a liberal, legitimizing the right. person. Right. Well, I would even say, temp- again, I, I used to think never ever separation. Mm-hmm. I, I'm against separation, but I can see a situation where it is dangerous to remain. And 
for that person, to, even for the wife, to say, I'm not going to divorce now. I'm going to give you time. But to live together in peace requires something at this level. Um, it's very complicated and very difficult. But I think the situation you're describing, we've got a man verbally abusive, driving the family into debt, sluggard, da 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 that abandoning, I'm, I can, this isn't this topic on that, but yeah. as an initial step, I would say that with the guidance of the elders, for her to have the right to pull away and say, if you're willing to work on things in a reasonable way, I'm willing to try with that. But I'm not going to continue to let you do this. It's a very tough line to draw. Um, so, when you hear of a claim, we've already talked about this, you need to, in some degree, investigate it. The first depleted case sounds right till someone else comes along and examines him. True example, one night I'm in my office, I have a window on the door, I know I have a new case, I know it involves abuse, I'm finishing up the previous case, I see through my window a woman in the lobby with a black eye. And I begin in my heart to take up the role of the defender of the oppressed, and I'm going to when this guy comes in here, he's going to catch it from me. And they sit down, and she says, I say to him, Sir, how did your wife get that shiner? How did she get that black eye? Well, she got it when I threw my cell phone at her and hit her in the eye. And she said, Yeah, that was right after I'd run him over with the truck and broken his leg. The first to plead his case sounds right till someone else comes along and examines him. So, and then, isn't it, you may, sometimes you have to help the victim deal with, you know, come to a biblical understanding of what their fault may have been in terms of provocation, even in a sexual situation of enticement or not crying out or something, but also realizing the fault and the sin on the other side and addressing that and oftentimes to help him to get by with the false guilt because he says, I deserved it, maybe he's right, that you know, my failures causes anger. Some people are, are more afraid of being alone and being abused. So, well, if, if I report him for what he's doing to me and to the kids, he's going to go to jail or he'll leave me and I'll be destitute or he might kill me. Uh, if I was just a more submissive wife, it would be fine. He told me I can't report to anybody. I've got to submit to him. Just as a comment, submission doesn't take Matthew 18 out of the Bible, which says if your brother sins and he won't listen to you, you, you confront him, then you go to others and, if necessary, to the church. And a husband doesn't have the right to tell his wife, you can't tell other people who have jurisdiction what I've done. But abusive men do that frequently. You've got to submit to me, even though I may be looking at porn and, you know, doing evil to you and the kids, you've got to be quiet about it. No, she has the right, biblically, to get help. Jesus doesn't say, unless you're married, you, 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 he says, you can go. Uh, confusion, well, he just has a disease. He's always so nice to me afterwards, which is just the cycle of abuse. So she needs, you know, she needs to see it biblically, get over the fear of man. You know, if she has fault, confess that to God, but then to see the sinfulness of others. Deuteronomy also says the woman who was essentially raped in the field and she did cry out has no blame. Tamar had no blame. And the abuser is fully responsible for what he did wrong. She may need help in confrontation of him. Uh, 
for her own safety, but also even for his sake. And in Luke, well, back to Galatians 6, we're going to talk about in the last session. If someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. He's in worse shape than you, or she, if she's the abuser, uh, being enslaved to this sin, which is destroying your family. And so you want to do this not to get revenge, but for the sake of, of restoration. And then, as I said, also, in the case especially of a sexual predator, to protect future victims. When this person is exposed and hopefully punished, it may keep others safe. And then victims of abuse can overcome by the grace of God. We're not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, we offer comfort. We should offer hope. We are supposed to, as counselors, reflect the compassion of Christ. To weep with those who weep. And this is an environment when we're especially called to that. This is also why women should counsel women, primarily. Uh, when a woman has been horribly mistreated and she's weeping, my wife is in a much better position to put her arms around her, to pray with her, to care for her, and to go through this with her. And I have no business getting that close physically or emotionally. It's much better. Or my wife and I together with my wife providing the physical and emotional support. But then ultimately our comfort is, is that we can point her to Christ. That Jesus knows more about, you know, you may, like my wife may have never had it happen to her that way, and I've never had it happen to me. But of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one has been tempted in all ways, such as we are, yet without sin. And we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace, to find help in our time of need. So whatever has happened to you, I can say Jesus completely understands read the Gospels. He was abused. He suffered. People who should have been his friends abandoned him. People who should have worshipped him killed him. And he did that for you. He understands what you're going through. He intercedes for you. And he will never expect you to suffer as much for him as he has suffered for you. Uh, you need to build a biblical view of suffering. I love the count, the example of Joseph, uh, to go through that with someone who is a victim. Uh, part of it is when Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph did not duck the issue of the sovereignty of God. And I can say certainly that God hates what this man did to you. God hates this kind of evil. So why did God let it happen? I say, I don't know why God let it happen necessarily. But I can't deny that God let it happen. And what I have to do is say, well, what good might God bring from this? Maybe you're going to be the one to comfort others and their suffering, but we can't make excuses for God as if he was looking the wrong direction and this happened to you when he wasn't paying attention. Uh, God, sometimes, like in Joseph's case, he was abused so that others might be delivered. Uh, sometimes God allows us to suffer to make us more like Christ. Second Corinthians 1 says we comfort others with the comfort we have received from God. Uh, just to see us trusting God in the midst of suffering brings him glory. The suffering makes us look forward to you know, our troubles now, make us look forward to the glory yet to be revealed when Christ returns. Uh, we help the victim understand forgiveness. This is this can be complicated uh, in many ways. One is, 
if the abuser, I mean, one is, is the abuser even trying to seek forgiveness? Another, is this forgiveness sincere, or is he just trying to get out of trouble? Um, forgiveness does not mean the crime is not reported, and the victim, you know, the, 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 if the person is repentant, he should be willing to accept the consequences of what he did. Uh, in some cases, the person who's guilty, we would hope, God can forgive anything, including physical or sexual abuse, and that person may be brought to repentance, and in that case, we have to entrust that Christ has redeemed that, and, but in many cases, there is not repentance. Um, each can be challenging in its own way. If the person says they're repentant, what, repentant, what do you do? Well, it doesn't mean, okay, now I'm going to hang out with you alone. It doesn't even mean now I have a relationship with you. But Jesus says in Luke 17, if your brother sins and he repents, forgive him. And so you can grant forgiveness um, by the power that God gives you. And, of course, the only way to do that is in light of the forgiveness that God has shown you. Um, Sometimes they're not repentant. And you know, a lot of victims would just love for the person to admit it. And we've had cases where we're pretty sure something happened, but the person who did it will never admit it. And so it's left in limbo. Uh, in terms of forgiveness, Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now those people at that moment weren't repentant. But he had an attitude of forgiveness. And without there being reconciliation, without there being... I've, I've sinned, will you forgive me? There can still be an attitude. I have received much grace, and if God ever grants repentance to this person, I want to forgive him as God has forgiven me. And that will also be in the last session. Um, the other aspect is the justice of God is of some help. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The government may fail to punish the abuser. The family may even protect the abuser to avoid shame. The church may not be able to get to the bottom of the matter or may not do what the Bible says they're supposed to do. Human justice may totally fail, but God's justice will not fail. And there's comfort in the fact that God knows what happened. God hates it more than we do, and justice will be served. It will be served if the person really repents and believes in Christ. It's been served on the cross, and we can be content in that. And if this person does not repent, then God will bring judgment upon them much more terrible than what happened to you. Uh, the person who has been abused does not have to make being abused their identity. Uh, a lot of times they will, because you're abused, you're going to be an abuser, you have a dysfunctional family. Uh, one verse that brings me a lot of comfort is 1 Peter 1. And it says in verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. So he's saying, your past, you inherited something bad. Uh, my dad was an angry guy. <laughs> and, but because of the gospel, I've been redeemed not just in terms of forgiveness, but I'm no longer enslaved to my old life. Christ has set me free to be a person of grace. And in the same way for a believer who has been the victim of abuse, their identity is no longer, not only it's not their sin, it's not the sin that's been committed against them. The gospel sets them free from being controlled by this. And uh, books like these are helpful in, in working those things out. But that's, that's the goal. And then just dealing with some of the common 
struggles, but then you can process these biblically. Uh, one of the issues in the book uh, Beauty for Ashes was the woman who had been the victim, she and her husband felt like in some ways it was affecting their marriage relationship. And as they were able to deal with what happened in the past and understand it through a biblical lens and, and even deal with it doesn't have to make her all messed up in a sinner now. If she processes her, her new identity in Christ, it, it results in her own restoration and then her uh, you know, healing in her marriage. Um, in terms of for victims of abuse, these books are great. Studying the life of Joseph, I think, is... Uh, not many of us have been as badly abused as Joseph was in the sense of being beaten nearly to death, thrown into a pit, left for dead, then sold as a slave, separated from the family of God for many, many years. How was he able to survive? Well, he entrusted judgment to God. You know, Am I in the place of God, he says to his brothers when they're fearful that he's going to punish them. And he realized God is in the place of God. God is judge. I don't have to judge my brothers. And also to see the sovereignty of God in that God had a good plan even to what to him seemed the worst thing that could have happened. And, and to us it would seem so terrible. Uh, the last section I have in your notes I'll, I'll touch on briefly, and that's counseling the one who has committed the abuse. And generally, in general, this is no fun. Um, because there's a lot of anger management stuff, and they're counseling their classes for abusers. Sometimes there's mandated classes they get to the courts. And there's a mentality of victimhood on their part, like you're this way because of your family, your genetics. They need to repent. They need to see, like Jesus says in Mark 7 and Matthew 15, it's out of the heart that this comes. And they need to repent not just of what they do by controlling anger outwardly and behavior, they need to repent of their false beliefs. Abusers think they have rights, and the abuser, when he harms others, thinks that they deserve it. Uh, you know, James 4, the source of quarrels and conflicts, is you want something, you don't get it, so you kill. And you know, I deserve an affectionate wife, or an understanding husband, or obedient children, or whatever it is they think they want. And when they don't get it, they, what they think they have a right to, they judge, they become angry. And again, it's not just men. One of the sad cases I had was a woman, and she'd been reading all the magazines about the perfect family, and you know, she, she had a few small kids, and you know, she wanted to have the perfect house, perfectly clean, perfect dinner at the perfect time for the perfect husband. And life didn't work out that way. And she'd be trying to make the dinner, and the kids would start misbehaving, and she'd get distracted, and the dinner would burn. It's going to be burned and late. And she would explode in anger and not just spank her kids, but vent her wrath on those kids. And it was her own heart's desire. And having to give to God, she's not going to have a perfect family. And to set God's desires and his sovereignty above her desires and expectations. Interestingly, when, when you, one of the best ways to counsel abusers is just let them talk. You know, where there's many words, transgression is unavoidable. My experience with abusers is if you just let them describe what happened, they will supply both the noose and the, and, you know, the rope, the tree, to hang themselves by their own words and condemning themselves. Well, I did this and she did that, and then I gave her what she deserved. Uh, that's almost been invariably the case. They can be charming and manipulative in the short term, but you just kind of get them talking about it. And what's in their heart comes out of their big mouths. So he must repent. Uh, Proverbs 28, 
13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And not minimizing, not blame shifting. Uh, first repenting before God and then before the people he's hurt. Uh, kind of the seven A's of confession I went through this morning. Part of it is accepting the consequences. Um, I'm dealing with a case right now where the husband was extremely controlling and angry and the wife moved out. And she said she wanted to work on the marriage, but she just couldn't live under the same roof with the guy. If she would have asked me, I would not have encouraged her to move out. I didn't think it was that bad. It was bad. It wasn't, you know, she wasn't ever physically at risk. But one thing that really encouraged me to give me hope that the husband was repentant is rather than getting mad at her for moving out on him, his attitude was, this shows me how wrong I've been. And his heart is broken. I have been an impatient, proud, judgmental man that's driven my wife to do this. And I need to repent of my sin rather than going after her for her sin. Uh, the characteristics of repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, he says, there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death, but there's a sorrow that reproves repentance without regret leading to salvation. Earnestness, you know, it's describing vindication of yourselves, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, avenging of wrong. Abusers often, all they care about is removing the consequences. They hate that they're caught. They want the consequences to go away. They want to be trusted. They want the rights back. That is not repentance. Repentance is this guy saying, I realize I've done things that have driven you away, which is never what you wanted. And I don't want you to come home till you feel safe. I want to earn your trust back. And I'm more concerned about you and the situation than me. An abuser who's primarily concerned about himself is not repentant. Um, so counseling the abuser, getting the heart of the anger. I've got another booklet on that. Um, can abusers be rehabilitated? I, I believe whoever's in Christ is a new creation. People can change. I, I, I've never physically touched my wife inappropriately in anger, but I can say over the course of 35 plus years of marriage, the Lord has helped me to deal with issues of anger and to become a much more gracious person by the sanctifying power of his spirit. I have seen him do that in others as well. The gospel for that is the key. An abuser needs to confess his sin, holding nothing back, uh, giving him an anger journal to work on, something like that. Uh, you know, thinking through his anger in terms of what provoked me, what was my response, what's a biblical evaluation of my response, um, that can be helpful in analyzing that. Ultimately, it's the grace of God. If, if someone... From the standpoint of the abuser, if he realizes how merciful God has been to him, he's going to stop judging his wife or his kids or whoever else it is and trying to punish them. He will cease to be a judge and he'll be an agent of mercy. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, I have an example somewhere. I'm trying to do it off the top of my head, but it's kind of usually what happened, what was my response, or I said, what happened, what did I want? If I got angry, I wanted something. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, desires things? So what was it that I wanted? You know, what did I say to myself? What should I have said to myself? Um, just kind of thinking through in terms of my heart's desires, which led to these actions, and what I should have, you know, you, when you get angry, you believe the lie about your rights and about the other person and your right to punish them. 
And so to identify those ungodly thoughts and to identify biblical thoughts that would replace it. In Luke Priola's book, Heart of Anger, he has examples of an anger journal. It was originally written for kids, but it works just great with adults. Okay, well, thank you for coming after lunch and for mostly staying awake. <laughs> Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that we have a Savior who has compassion for those who have been hurt and abused. Uh, I don't know the stories of those in this room and who they may be helping or what may have happened to them, but thank you that we have a Savior who understands, who intercedes, who cares and helps. And help us as we minister to those who have been abused sexually or physically to minister his grace, help us to protect those who are weak, help us to confront those who have done wrong, help us to be faithful to your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.